I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. As we continue our chronological study of the Gospels, today we'll be reading Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 1 down through chapter 17, verse 9, Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 10 down through chapter 9, verse 10, and Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 36. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. So here's where we are in these passages. Jesus is still ministering in northern Israel, up around the Sea of Galilee. We see that in Mark chapter 8, verse 22. And these events take place in the last year of Jesus' ministry before his crucifixion. We begin with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, seeing that they are very religious, but at the same time, very corrupt. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, and Mark chapter 8, verses 10 through 12. First, Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites! You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Now Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 10. He immediately got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Well, this episode takes place while they're still in northern Israel, presumably around the Sea of Galilee. All of the two places mentioned by name, Magdala or Magadon, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 39, or Dalmanutha in Mark chapter 8, verse 10, those are today unknown locations. When these Sadducees and Pharisees, who were leaders in religion among the populace, come to Jesus insincerely, I might say, seeking a sign, he addresses these very religious men as hypocrites. And then he characterizes their request when he says in verse 4 of Matthew chapter 16, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus here is making reference to his words on an earlier occasion back in Matthew 12, verses 38 to 42. Both there and in this passage, Jesus is declaring that his resurrection, it will serve as the only sign they'll see. Then we have another lesson on 11 in Matthew chapter 16, verses 5 through 12, and Mark chapter 8, verses 13 through 21. Matthew 16, verse 5. Now, when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, 
It is because we have taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand, O remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now Mark's account, over in Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 13. And he left them, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, Seven. So he said to them, How is it you do not understand? Jesus here, as he talks with his disciples, after the incident with the religionist in the preceding verses, he compares these religionists to the leaven in the following context. Leaven, or yeast, grows until everything it contacts is affected by the leaven. Likewise, these religious leaders had spread their corrupt doctrine to the point that it had permeated the thinking of the Jewish people. It's interesting that Matthew recalls specifically that Jesus mentioned the Sadducees in the same context with the Pharisees, but Mark mentions Herod. Certainly, Jesus lumps all three into the same religious but lost category. By the time Jesus would be crucified, the leaven, or the corruption of the Sadducees, Pharisees, and Herod, they would develop into an angry mob ready to crucify the Messiah. If you thought, as many do, that all religions are good if you're sincere, this encounter between Jesus and these very religious men should cause you to reassess your position. These verses make it apparent that the disciples had a tough time transitioning between physical and spiritual applications. Jesus perceived that they thought perhaps Jesus' remarks had something to do with the fact that they were hungry and had a food shortage, thus the reference to the two miraculous multi-thousand feedings on a shoestring budget. Jesus clarifies that the growing leaven analogy speaks to the spreading corruptness of these God-rejecting religionists. In Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26, Mark records the healing of a blind man. Verse 22, Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. 
Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell anyone in the town. Now, Bethsaida is located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel. Jesus demonstrates his power here over blindness. Only Mark records this particular healing. There are a couple of interesting aspects to this account. First of all, Jesus met the man in Bethsaida, but led him out of the town to perform the healing. Subsequently, he told him not to go back into town, but to return to his home. Since a vital aspect of Jesus' earthly ministry was to be fulfilled in his crucifixion on the Passover day after a three-plus-year ministry, Jesus, at this point, took measures along the way to control the hype, so to speak, the hype over miracles such as this one. Secondly, it's interesting that after Jesus' first action in the process of healing the man, the man sees, but he doesn't see clearly. However, part two of the healing process restores the man's eyesight completely. Many over the years have conjectured as to why Jesus healed this man in two phases. But Mark, well, he doesn't elaborate. There's simply no way of knowing from Scripture why the healing was performed in this particular fashion. Then we see in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, and Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 21, a defining moment for Peter. Important passage of Scripture right here. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Now we go over to Mark's account. Mark just gives it four verses in Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. Now Luke, and Luke only gives it four verses as well, beginning in Luke chapter 9, verse 18. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one. Well, Jesus and his disciples are in northern Israel around Caesarea Philippi, about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It's a simple question that Jesus asked. He says, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Matthew gives this occasion twice as much coverage as Mark or Luke. 
When Jesus gets an assortment of answers from the disciples, he follows up with another question. But who do you say that I am? Peter wastes no time with his reply. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, that's all that Mark and Luke report of this occasion. At that time, Jesus made some significant observations about Peter's confession, which were reported only by Matthew. Keep in mind of the three writers, Matthew's the only one who was a first-hand witness of this dialogue. And if you wonder why, see my introduction to the Gospels on the very first reading of the year on January the 1st, where we look at Matthew chapter 1. Let's notice what Jesus says about Peter's insight and future role. Peter's future role was a result of his insightful reply in Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 through 19. Jesus tells Peter that he received this revelation from God and that Jesus will build his church upon this revelatory word. The gates of hell or Hades shall not prevail against this church, and Peter will receive keys. These keys will enable him to bind and loose. So what is this that Christ has promised Peter? It's impossible to say with absolute certainty, but it would appear that Peter's actions in the book of Acts that those actions were empowered as a result of this declaration by Jesus right here in this passage. Now, here's what I mean by that statement. Specifically, when the Jews received the word, along with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, who was it that moderated that whole incident? Well, when the Samaritans and the half-breed Jews received the same, the same kind of miracle, the same kind of manifestation, uh, for the very first time in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25, who was it that was summoned to moderate over that occasion? And by the way, when the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, verses 24 through 48, when they also received the word along with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, who was there to moderate that event? Now, if you said Peter in answer to all three questions, then you are correct. It appears that on all three occasions, Peter was exercising the keys, the keys which had been presented to him in this very passage of Scripture. As a result, three separate categories of people, first Jews in Acts chapter 2, then Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, and then Gentiles, that's everybody else, they were formally inducted into the newly founded church, the body of Christ. And Peter moderated over all of those. Now, those are some pretty powerful keys, wouldn't you say? There could be no question Peter was set apart for special service on this occasion. Now, some have suggested that Jesus was speaking collectively to all of the disciples when he made these statements. In other words, they claimed that Jesus was designating some apostolic authority here. However, the Greek wording is very clear. While in English usage, you or the can be used as either a singular or a plural second-person pronoun, not so in Greek. All references in verses 17 to 19 using the second-person personal pronoun are singular. I said singular, and they refer only to Peter and Peter alone. The same is the case with the person and number of the Greek verbs used in those verses. Therefore, this was not a general commissioning to all the disciples, but comments directed only to Peter, distinct from other general commissioning statements elsewhere that were directed to all of the apostles. And that much, by the way, is certain. 
Incidentally, for those who might wonder, this conversation between Jesus and his disciples obviously took place in Greek, not Aramaic, not Hebrew. The special play on words between the Greek name assigned to Peter, Petros, and its similarity for the Greek word for rock, Petra, is key in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The differentiation of this sentence would have made no sense spoken in Aramaic or Hebrew. The rock, Petra, it's not Peter himself, but rather the revelation given by Peter in verse 16, when Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. However, it should be noted that Peter's Greek name, Petros, is a translation from the equivalent Aramaic word for rock as seen in John chapter 1, verse 42, when Jesus says to him, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. However, the difference between the proper masculine Greek name Petros and the feminine word for rock, Petra, it's only a relational play on words in the Greek language. If such a play on words had been spoken between Jesus and Peter in Aramaic, Matthew surely would have given us the Aramaic equivalents in this passage. And then we see uh, some interesting wording in Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23, Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33, and Luke chapter 9, verse 22, where Jesus refers to Peter as Satan, Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now Mark's account in Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Luke chapter 9, verse 22, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And that's all Luke had to say about the incident. Peter obviously didn't understand the whole plan at this point. He was good with the ministry aspect of Jesus, but he couldn't quite comprehend the necessity of the crucifixion being presented here by Jesus. Of course, Jesus understood his role as the prophesied suffering Messiah in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, where it was very clearly prophesied there. He understood that from the beginning. But you might imagine that such a concept would be difficult for his disciples to digest. If we see nothing else in this passage, we get the full impact of this necessity for crucifixion when we hear Jesus' harsh reply to Peter when he says, Get behind me, Satan. What did Jesus mean by that? I mean, was Peter Satan? Well, no, he wasn't Satan. A strong point is being made here by Jesus. Satan would have liked nothing better than for Jesus to take a pass on the crucifixion. Redemption for all mankind at 
he'd done that, would have been foiled. That crucifixion is the key to salvation for the ages. To suggest that Jesus skip his primary purpose for coming, the crucifixion, well, that's to play into the hands of satanic thinking. So in the strongest words possible, Jesus rebukes Peter for such a suggestion. But Peter was not, nor would he ever be, Satan. Interestingly enough, Luke doesn't record the actual rebuke of Peter by Jesus on this occasion. Next, let's look at the difference between discipleship and salvation, a point that I make over and over again in my commentary. We'll look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 27, Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38, and Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. First, Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Now Mark chapter 8, verse 34. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." Now, Luke, Luke just gives it four verses in Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 23. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Well, Jesus has just completed his comments regarding what lies ahead of them, the mock trials, the crucifixion, the resurrection. Peter's reaction in the preceding section indicated that he didn't anticipate that it was going to be going in this direction. Now it's time to clearly indicate the cost of discipleship, the cost that lies in their future. Now here's an important concept for understanding the teachings of Jesus and the Gospels. Here it is. Salvation is different from discipleship. I'm going to say it again. Discipleship and salvation, they are not the same thing. As a matter of fact, let's add a category called special purpose discipleship. So let me provide some definitions here. First of all, salvation is trusting Jesus Christ by faith as your only means for eternal life and going to heaven. It's a born-again experience facilitated by the empowering of the Holy Spirit by faith, and that delivers the believer into God's family. An eternity-long covenant relationship is experienced between the believer and God as a result of this. 
Now, I've written an article entitled, What the Bible Says About Eternal Life. It's in the topic section of BibleTrack.org. Take a look at that. Or if you're looking at the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, there's a link right there. Now, let's talk about discipleship for a moment. The action of following and emulating the actions of Jesus. That's discipleship. Interestingly enough, Judas was a disciple. But Judas never experienced salvation. We see that in John chapter 6, verse 70. And then we have what I call a special purpose discipleship. And that special purpose discipleship, you may have not heard before, but let me explain it. It's the action of dropping everything you're doing, forsaking family ties and possessions, and exclusively committing everything, all your resources, to the cause of ministering with Jesus in his earthly ministry. That's what I call special purpose discipleship. Whoa, now that's third category. That's special purpose discipleship. What is that? Well, simply speaking, Jesus on several occasions in the Gospels, he called men to recognize the urgency of his earthly mission and drop everything. I mean drop everything and follow and assist in this ministry. For example, I married while I was in the United States Marine Corps during the Vietnam era. For nine months, I reported to my squadron every day and in the evening went home to my wife. Then I received my orders to the Western Pacific. And by the way, no wives allowed if you're a Marine in the Western Pacific. Even though I ultimately ended up serving in a squadron in Iwakuni, Japan, all of us who served in the Western Pacific, we were required to leave our wives and families behind and exclusively give our attention to the crisis at hand. So does being a Marine mean forsaking family? Well, not necessarily. There were special purpose assignments that did, but other assignments didn't. Now, understand this analogy. As Jesus neared his crucifixion, by the way, we're in the last year before the crucifixion here, he was seeking disciples who would recognize this urgency, who would drop everything else they were involved in, including family, and follow Jesus. I reject the notion that discipleship today involves turning one's back on family commitments. Context is really important here. This special purpose discipleship is to be distinguished from expectations of discipleship for the New Testament believer. The Apostle Paul makes clear throughout his writings the importance of commitment to one's family responsibilities. Now, since Jesus has just elaborated on the perilous events that will take place from this point forward leading up to the crucifixion, this is definitely a call to extreme special purpose discipleship. I mean, following Jesus to the death. Now let's take a look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, Mark chapter 9, verse 1, and Luke chapter 9, verse 27. Matthew chapter 16, verse 28. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now here's how Mark phrased it. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. And Luke chapter 9, verse 27 says it like this. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Well, after this call to discipleship in the preceding verses, 
It would appear that Jesus is telling his disciples that they're going to witness the establishment of the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. That's the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven which Jesus has been talking about since his earthly ministry began. He seems to indicate it will happen before they die. In reality, the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, synonymous terms, still hasn't come, and it will not until a distinct yet future time. So one naturally wonders what this statement means in Matthew chapter 16, verse 28, when Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It's logical to conclude that Jesus must have been referring to the transfiguration which takes place in the following verses six days later. And in all three synoptic accounts, we find it, Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9. In fact, these disciples did see Jesus in the presence of Elijah and Moses on that occasion six days later at the transfiguration. We'll read about that in a few moments. There's certainly a wide array of thinking regarding the meaning of this verse. The central consideration here is this. What is the kingdom of God? Until Israel declared its independence as a nation in 1948, after 2,500-plus years of not being a sovereign nation, many theologians promoted what is today frequently called replacement theology. Simply stated, they believed that all the little promises to Israel for the future would be fulfilled in the body of Christ, the church. To them, it simply wasn't realistic to believe, after a period of over 2,500 years, that Israel would once again become a nation. As such, they saw the New Testament church as the replacement entity in nearly every Old Testament prophecy regarding Israel. Incidentally, many of these commentators provided some excellent technical commentaries, as well as popular commentaries that are still widely used as references today. I mean, how many copies of Matthew Henry's commentary are sitting on bookshelves around the world at this very moment? However, since the 1948 birth of Israel, most commentators today interpret prophecies regarding Israel literally rather than figuratively. That being the case, we must clearly define what is meant when Jesus refers to the kingdom of God. Now, to the replacement theologian, who aren't so plentiful anymore, the kingdom of God refers to the birth of the church. However, this provides many, many problems of interpretation regarding Israel-specific comments that Jesus made regarding the kingdom all through his gospel accounts. I'm certain that when Jesus refers to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, he's literally speaking of the time when Jesus will rule the earth as the Messiah, the literal earth as the literal Messiah. That was the reality the Jews of his day were looking for, and that's the reality he addressed. I'm just not comfortable with making Jesus' term kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven a moving target. I'm convinced that Jesus meant it to be understood literally each time he used that term. Now, that being said, I'm uneasy with calling the ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter 1 the fulfillment of this prophecy. That's a replacement theology notion that equates the New Testament church to be the equivalent of Israel with regard to prophecy. Likewise, some replacement theologians turn preterist in their view of prophecy to see the fulfillment of this prophecy in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. 
Now, in order to make that premise work, they insist that the Apostle John's writing of his revelation took place before the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Most scholars today date the writing of Revelation somewhere around 95 A.D. Now, the preterist sees the kingdom of God established in the form of New Testament believers, and he further believes that most, if not all, of the events in the book of Revelation were actually fulfilled leading up to the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. Therefore, when we, the literalists, dismiss the short-sighted theories that Israel's the church and the church is Israel, well, we literalists are left with the task of explaining how these disciples could have seen the coming of the kingdom of God before they died, because that's what the verses that we just read said. While not completely satisfying to the inquiring mind, the occurrence of the transfiguration of Jesus six days later in the presence of Moses and Elijah, well, that may have very well served to fulfill this prophecy. So that brings us then to this account of the transfiguration. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 10, and Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. First, Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to him, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Now over to Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse 2, same account. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one any more, but only Jesus with themselves. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen, till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Now let's look at what Luke has to say about this in Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now it came to pass about eight days after these things that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem." 
But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. Jesus had said a few days earlier that some of his disciples would see some kind of a sight which would serve as a demonstration of his coming kingdom. He said that in Matthew 16:28, Mark 9:1, and Luke 9:27. Well, here's that event. We know it is the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John are present. The face of Jesus, along with his garments, begins shining as Elijah and Moses appear with Jesus. He then has a conversation with Elijah and Moses. Peter's first inclination is to make a tourist attraction out of this spot. Then they hear a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. This event served the disciples as a foreshadowing of the kingdom of heaven that was to come. But Jesus explains that other Old Testament prophecies must be fulfilled first, including the crucifixion and resurrection. They ask among themselves, reckon what that means. Matthew and Mark timed this event at after six days from the occasion of Matthew 16:28, Mark 9:1, and Luke 9:27. Luke actually describes the lapse time as about eight days. Well, technically, both are correct and both are obviously intended to be approximations as to when the transfiguration itself took place in relation to the previous verse. Incidentally, the appearance of Moses and Elijah on this occasion lends credibility to the notion that the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1-14 through 14, are most likely these two prophets resurrected. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.